Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. This Christmas, some people sat in the dark and the cold because they lost electricity. Is that a harbinger of the future? Are electrical blackouts something we have to learn to live with in order to explore this vital subject so important to the nation? And I'm so glad to have as my guests today, Dwayne Hiley, CEO of Tri-State Generation and Transmission Association, which is headquartered in Westminster, Colorado, which is hard by Denver. Welcome to the broadcast, Dwayne. Uh, Thank you, Dwayne. Uh, what is your prognosis for the electric industry this winter? Oh, goodness. I think we're in for a little bit of a roller coaster ride this winter. Uh, some ups and some downs, a little bit of both. And uh, what what do you see? The downs are what interests people. Nobody's interested in anything that's running perfectly, that's perfectly smooth, which is what electricity is most of the time. Um, what do you see as the pressure points and what collectively can the industry do to alleviate them in the short run? Well, we do have some pretty serious pressure points that won't be easily relieved. Uh, the, the Northeastern United States is looking at the possible shortfall of fuel, which could be very serious if they have a, a colder than average winter, almost certainly not to have enough gas on hand. And there's not really a way to get it there in time to make a difference at this point. So maybe prayer would work. We mean natural gas. Yes. Yes. And then some, you know, still uh, issues in Texas with the potential for if they have unseasonably cold weather and things that may not yet be fully winterized to protect them from that outcome. So those two particular areas are, are of great concern. And uh, what about the Midwest? I think the Midwest, in terms of SPP, uh, they're pretty good on reserve margins. And at least in terms of normal weather, they think they've got the needed reserves they need to protect. And same with the Western System, Western Electric Coordinating Council says the winter reserves look about okay. So unless we have severely cold winter, we should be good there as well. So your customers are all right. Or you think our customers are great, Llewellyn. <laughs> First of all, they're member owners and they're 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 better than anybody. And and they're they're at no risk with tri-state in terms of our reserves. Oh, that's very good. Now you're in the intermountain region uh, and subject to some pretty severe weather. If it is not going to be fuel shortage, uh, what about the concerns that come with weather? Certainly at the distribution level, you can have issues with uh, icing. And, and if you have a severe storm that deposits lots of ice, it's in that right temperature range. Sometimes it could be very hard to keep lines off the ground, you know, if, if it's building up on a line. But that's a relatively rare event. In terms of just snowfall, we're all very well prepared for that. Tell me about yourself. How did you come to be an executive in the electric utility industry? <laughs> That's one of those great mysteries of life, Llewellyn. You know, it's uh, if you just kind of keep coming to work every day and doing the best thing you know how to do, uh, I think I guess eventually you might be doing this. You might be running a utility. It's it's a matter of service for me in terms of the electric co-op network and, and our particular business model, member-owned nonprofit, has always been appealing for me from the very beginning. And that's that's why I chose to go this way rather than a different route out of out of college. Are you an engineer by training? I am, uh, double E, 
University of Missouri at Rolla, they called it at the time. Now it's Missouri S&T. Ah, I wondered what happened to Rolla. I, I was a speaker <laughs> several times there, and it suddenly disappeared. I didn't realize they changed the name. Well, it had the best name at first. It was Colorado, or not Colorado, it was Missouri School of Mines. And that was probably the best name they ever had. And then when they did their old consolidation business, University of Missouri at Rolla, and then they had this opportunity to change the name and send a survey to all the alum. And I voted for going back to mines, but they uh, they overruled me and and went to Missouri Science and Technology. So that's, names, that's the school. Names, names are a challenge to Dwayne, aren't they? I mean, tri-state is not three <laughs> states, it's four states. It's a poorly named cooperative. What can we say? You know, uh, Tri-State has members in four states, Nebraska, Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and, and then it has assets in five. So add Arizona. Uh, but what a beautiful place to have assets. Well, that's that's true. And that's very nice. Do you get to go around it a lot looking at your assets? <laughs> now watch how you say that. <laughs> Do you yes. Aren't a drone or uh, no? Uh, it's it's one of the great privileges of this job is to be able to serve members in such diverse locations and to be go be able to go and visit them. And one of the great privileges is to be able to go to a local cooperative annual meeting. So as you know, we serve forty two uh, local locally owned cooperatives and public power districts, and to be able to go visit with the people who actually own their utility in their hometown is just a great privilege. And it's the, the, the beauty of the West and the diversity of the people are two of our great, great uh, resources. You went to uh, you went to school in the Midwest. Where's your family from? Well, I grew up everywhere, Llewellyn. So I grew up in Indiana and Illinois and Missouri and Oklahoma and moved to a different town every year uh, between, you know, the first 12 years of my life. We lived in 12 different places. So I'm a product of the overall Midwest, kind of an average Midwesterner. Was your father in the military, or there's some other reason he was so peripatetic? <laughs> he was a, a retail store manager at a time when things were changing quickly, you know, post-war and and uh, the growth that was occurring. So he worked for Woolworths, you know, he used to have a store in every square, and he worked TG&Y, and he worked for um, W.T. Grant Company, which was kind of an up-and-coming J.C. Penney lookalike that imploded in the 70s. And uh, uh, how did you choose engineering? Did you have a, a, a facility with math, or did you like buildings or the way things were constructed? What was the imperative for you? You certainly didn't go into retail sales. No, I didn't. Uh, I guess it was it had to be the math, which, which was an easy part, but it was really the inspiration of people who stood before me. And one of those was my grandfather, who I think was a a self-taught engineer um, in the in the 20s and 30s, he was building his own radios, self-taught, and uh, even built the first TV in his neighborhood using a kit so that all the neighbors could come over to the house and watch the the, the boxing match uh, on a screen about this big, by the way, black and white, you know, Halicrafter kit. So now we've gone back to apparently watching on our watches, which exactly are even right. full uh, circle. It, it, the screen is bigger than an iPhone screen, no question about it. And uh, uh, but he was an inspiration because when I'd visit his house, he had this workshop with all these meters and dials and you know oscilloscopes and waveform generators, and so that's probably a pretty strong inspiration. We're going through an enormous change in the electric system in the U.S. We're moving from. Uh, basically fossil fuel with nuclear to 
renewables with nuclear, and if you're lucky, some hydropower. Uh, how smooth is that transition? And is it likely to create problems, uh, i.e. shortages of power? We're almost certainly looking at that, Llewellyn. And the, the pace of change that's being dictated by many state regulatory bodies is faster than what the industry can do or faster than what the supply chain can deliver. That's a, a key consideration today is, is whether we can build the amount of solar and wind that the, the funding sources would provide under the Inflation Reduction Act, for example, or the Infrastructure Act. There are billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars available for an energy transition that the supply chain cannot absorb. I mean, if we were to place all those orders, they couldn't be built. Now, that doesn't mean we're not making progress. We're making great progress in terms of decarbonizing the grid and moving towards renewables. And, and, and Tri-State's leading that charge as much as anyone. But there's going to be limits that we're going to bump into as we try to integrate all those renewables against a grid that has less and less dispatchable fossil generation. And now, dispatchable is the key thing. Uh, dispatchable means it's available when you want it. And you, you can push the button and have it run, I mean, not just for minutes or, or hours, but for days. When we look at the, the test case, it's a severe winter week where you might need dispatchable energy to cover five or six days of shortfall. You have been an advocate of much better transmission from west to east in particular, but that's really not likely to happen, is it? It's <laughs> going to have to be done in other ways. Little, little chunks of the grid have to be buttressed rather than big overhaul with big new lines. Isn't that a real realistic approach? I'd say that's realist, but that's not the dream I have. Um, the, the you know the dream I have that I will continue to promote until it just can't be done is that there may be a way to get enough interest in this and talk about it enough that there would be a national will to build national transmission corridors east to west that are critical to us meeting our clean energy goals. That energy has to move across time zones to be useful. The wind has to move west. The solar has to move east across time zones to make it useful. And unless we have the will to build something like the interstate highway system and just say, we're going to do it and then get the policy that will allow that to happen in a timely manner, we will not be able to make the full kind of energy transition that people are dreaming of. And that there is again, money to support, but that transmission infrastructure has to, we have to begin and we have to begin in a serious way. So I'm just gonna keep talking about it because we may find a way to do it. It's it's extremely important for us. It, it, under business as usual, it's never going to get done. It takes too long to build things. There's too many people against the right-of-ways that's needed. And it, it just can't happen unless we start thinking differently. I love the way that you're sticking with your dream. I love a man who has a dream and sticks with it. And I'll tell you a little story about this. I had a friend, unfortunately, he died recently, but he was a musicologist, a brilliant and a classic story, his father was a tailor in the East End of London. He went to Oxford, and for a brief while, he worked for me in New York. We were producing books, and uh, when that project came to an end, I said, now, Bernard, his name was Bernard, I said, except we called each other Buster because we were new in America, and we thought everybody in America called each other Buster. But, uh, <laughs> That's uh, fantastic. I even was able to uh, call him Buster at his uh, memorial service. But uh, 
he said, no, I want to write about music. And I said, come on, be serious. Get a proper job in music on the side. No, he wanted to be a musicologist. He wanted to write about music. And I, I, I just despaired. I saw him, you know, sort of sitting in the gutter, penniless. Nobody paid people to write about music, <laughs> except he got a job as a music critic in Chicago. Later on, he progressed uh, in Europe and here. He was head of the uh, artist and uh, uh, A&R, artist and recording for Boozy and Hawks, the classic oh, music publishers. Yeah, that's pretty and fantastic. Uh, he ended up in Philadelphia with uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra as a as a, a as an advisor but his high point probably was his musical director of the national orchestra in holland all because he didn't take my advice <laughs> so, so how do you feel about that really hang on that don't take my advice but i i've always loved people who had dreams and followed them and stuck with them and didn't uh, modify them and i, I salute you for that well, I don't think it comes from me, but I think I had a couple of good mentors who are just like your friend that that literally said, I'm going to build this thing. And everyone said it couldn't be done. And I watched him do it. One of them was the first CEO of, our, of Associate Electric, where I worked for 29 years. And, and I got to know him after his retirement. I actually didn't know him while he was working actively. But um, one time I was asking, he had this brilliant idea for a major integrated energy center that would take waste to energy and create byproducts that were useful. And I said, Neil, this is just too hard. There's too many things that all have to come together. And he says, that's exactly what they said about. And then he gave the name of another large project that he'd done. So uh, that's when I said, okay, you can do these things, but you can't be timid about it. You got to push and you got to continue to push as no one else is going to do it for you. And, and everyone's going to say it can't be done unless you just believe it will. When people run out of little ideas, they turn to the big idea, which they had thought was too difficult. Yeah. Uh, we might be, be built. Maybe build. not within my lifetime, but someday. Uh, that's very interesting. Is there any other way? I mean, is there any way people are building batteries that are about small modular reactors along the system to boost the system as it is, rather than to build uh, big new lines say from from Denver to Chicago or wherever. Yeah, I mean, with enough storage, I think you've hit it on it. There are uh, lots of storage, not not necessarily lithium ion battery storage that's hours long, but another technology that could be deployed on a day's basis, like a, either a, a flow battery, perhaps, or another battery technology that could store more. Um, Pumped storage hydro has always been great. You know, it's classic and proven. There's just not very many locations left where you can develop it. And you mentioned the reactors, um, several in development now, but we need to see that they can be done at an attractive price. That has not been demonstrated. So I'd say that's a 2040s technology, not a 2030s. I mean, it could be ready for 2040, but it's not going to be ready for 2030. When Well, it's a very interesting question. Everybody says they're going to be cheap because they're made in factories, but nobody has made one in factory in a factory. So we don't actually know that yet. It's an expectation. Uh, that in its way is a dream. And, you know, just look at our experience, even the Vodal plant currently, you know, at fuel load and ready to start doing some test energy. But that's been a tough road, even for a company as big as Southern Company that has almost unlimited resources and yet it's been a struggle for them to get in, and certainly not on time or on budget. 
So we just need to be able to demonstrate we can do this as a matter of national will. It hasn't been demonstrated yet. Um, what do you feel the political influence of this winter is going to be? If, for example, there are shortages here in New England, where I am at the moment, uh, if there are shortages uh, in Texas, are we going to see a new political think about energy? Or are we going to get a bunch of politicians pushing fingers at each other? It was renewables' fault. It was gas fault. It was profit-making fault. It was somebody's fault, except for the political uh, realities that have often crimped the development of electric projects. Well, well, first of all, Llewellyn, I hope your power, your your energy, your gas doesn't go out this winter because that would be horrible. But I'm reflecting on Storm Uri in Texas and how bad that was and how little has changed since that date. Um, if if we killed, we lost. 80 people is what I heard initially. Now I've heard numbers as high as 200 people. So I don't know what the real number is. But during that storm, people lost their lives because the power went off. That's a serious obligation that we have as the people who are responsible for the grid operating. And we can't let that happen again. And yet it seems to me that a lot of policy policymakers have said, well, that costs a lot of money and uh, we're going to do some winterization and it's all fine now. And it's not all fine. And, and you know, the NERC report, the reliability assessment demonstrates that. And we may get by this winter, we may get by next winter, but we're not going to get by forever. And that the day of reckoning is coming when the weather will catch up to us and we'll have another one of these events and there will be loss of life if the lights go out. And I, I just sincerely hope that wouldn't happen. But I don't think we're going to get serious about talking about the realities of the energy transition until that happens. And when I when I say realities, I just mean that we can make an energy transition and we can do it and keep the power reliable. But there's a certain pace at which that can occur. And if you try to push things faster than that, you're going to have problems like outages and uh, supply chain shortfalls where you can't get the equipment. And we've got everything perfectly set up for that to happen right now. A, a perfect storm of problems with the supply chain, with uh, increasing states that have their regulatory environment that's asking for a faster transition. And you combine that with what Europe's doing to get off of Russian energy as quickly as possible. So they're deploying renewables and every other form of generation as rapidly as they can. That collectively, along with the billions of dollars we're pouring into infrastructure in this country from the government, in terms of incentives, means we're just pouring all kinds of fuel on a fire that that can't produce the materials itself. I mean, we say the EPRI work from two years ago said you'd have to triple the rate of construction of renewables in this country to meet the energy policy goals by 2035. And that was starting two years ago. And there's no supply chain to triple the rate at which we're building things. We can keep going at the rate we're at and maybe increase at 10 or 20%. But we don't have any kind of resources up and down the whole supply chain to triple that. So it's a little bit of magical thinking to believe that we're going to achieve some of these goals. And at some point, we have to wake up as a nation and as a world collectively and say that the ambitious goals we've set for ourselves cannot be met despite our will. And, and it's not that we don't want to. It's just that we don't have enough stuff to do it. And then if we can set a more rational target, we can continue to execute on that and get better and better and better just in a way that doesn't break the system. Supply chain is a very um, hazy concept for most of us. What are we actually short of? What is Tri-State short of? Is it transformers? Is it uh, connectors? Is it 
holes. Where, where are the worst? Uh, uh, where is the worst uh, congestion in the supply chain for tri-state? For tri-state itself, I mean, we're in pretty good shape. I'm not eager to go buy some power transformers right now. If you're a distribution system, it's much more grave because the distribution transformers you use to hook up new loads, new neighborhoods and businesses are an extreme short supply to where you might be looking at two-year lead time to obtain transformers so that your local contractors can hook up that shopping center that they've built. Uh, and there's very real impacts on developers and builders right now. So that's an extreme short supply across the nation. And the uh, you know large power transformers are a big concern as well because the lead times are so large. Uh, even getting a bucket truck can now be a three-year endeavor to order a new bucket truck. So it's that kind of thing that's going to hurt us all over up and down the supply chain of what we use. That, that's extraordinary that we've got to that point. And there's no way around it, is there? Well, you know, as we want to electrify everything, and that's the goal, right? We're going to decarbonize the grid, and then we're going to electrify everything. That electrify everything part is what gets really hard. And, uh, you know, a normal household that adds an electric vehicle increases their electric consumption by about 40%. Multiply that across neighborhoods. Now you've got to start replacing infrastructure where the transformers are no longer large enough to serve that neighborhood. So the electrify everything things means also you're rebuilding feeders, rebuilding the local distribution grid. And then that moves upstream as you do all that. Then eventually you need to rebuild your transmission to higher capacities. And we don't have a grid today that can carry 40% more load than what we're serving today. That's planned for a couple decades from now. So how do we accelerate all that is a, a real challenge. Um, who speaks uh, for the rural electric cooperatives? Um, is that the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association or do you speak directly? Uh, what is the mechanism of having your thoughts, Dwayne Hiley's thoughts, heard <laughs> in Washington? Well, I mean, we all have our voice with our local elected representatives and they'll listen and we can tell them our story, which we do. The National Rural Electric Cooperative Association, NRECA, also speaks on behalf of the 900 plus electric cooperatives across this country, which serve 70% of land mass in the country. So we're kind of a big deal in terms of land mass, but not as many people as all the all the other utilities serve by any means. But uh, And then there, there's the Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, where I do have the privilege to serve as a representative of the cooperative sector and work with our federal leaders in terms of energy grid resiliency and reliability so that we meet with uh, DHS, DOE, and others to make sure that we're protected from physical and cyber attacks and that we're ready for weather events such as hurricanes or uh, wildfires. And, and, and that's a way that we work together to maybe share our voice and thoughts about what needs to be done to protect the grid. Um, what is the future of all of these tiny utilities? We have 3,000 utilities in the country, uh, a fistful of big investor-owned ones, uh, 2,000 municipals, yes. uh, public power, mostly municipals. There are some exceptions like PBA. Uh, and then we have 900, nearly a thousand rural electric cooperatives, which is your domain. Uh, how do they all work together? And is it desirable to have such a splintered electric supply system? 
Well, that's the United States. You know, we have our thing, right? We everybody's got their their method, and the the for profit method serves a lot of people in bulk where it's profitable. The nonprofits, the municipals, and the cooperatives are there to serve places that otherwise wouldn't be served, especially in the cooperative sector. And if it weren't for all that, there'd be still places that didn't have electricity in this country. So I I believe in the model, but it is a lot of small systems and. Some would argue for consolidation, but others would argue that we like having the local control where our member owners can come to the board table and say, here's how we want our power produced. Here's how we want it delivered. And that way, their local goals, which change across this country, can can be represented. So it's generally working. Uh, all those models have their challenges in terms of serving people reliably and affordably. But in general, I think it's working. What are the technologies that you look to? For the future that you, Dwayne, highly are excited about. Well, you know what I'm really excited about is normal technologies that keep the lights on. We've got a lot of wind and solar coming on here at Tri-State, and that's proven and it works well in our area. We're blessed with those resources and, and they're in abundance. So they can come in at a very competitive price after the tax incentives that come into play. The uh, other thing in our resource plan is uh, natural gas to keep the lights on. That's our battery. Until the battery technology gets better, that may be an old-fashioned and simple technology, and some could say that, but it's what keeps the lights on today, and it's what balances the load today. It has the ability to have a fuel oil backup, which is what saved us in Storm Uri from hundreds of millions of excess charges. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars our, our members would have had to bear that they didn't have to bear because we switched. And in the future, it may be able to be uh, fired with hydrogen, so that gives us that carbon-free option as that technology develops. So am I excited about hydrogen? Yeah, as a, as a potential that would maybe be an alternative to nuclear, where we could create energy and store it from surplus renewable energy and uh, hold that for the time when we really need it. I think that holds some great promise for us. Geothermal is another one I'm pretty excited about. And again, in our area in the West here, we are blessed with some good, what looks like potential geothermal resources that could provide baseload 24-7 carbon-free energy, and why not tap into that? Our state governor here in Colorado, Governor Polis, actually has an initiative on this, and we're pretty excited to partner with him on that one. So are there any other things you do when you're not making and distributing electricity? I guess we didn't talk music. I am a guitar owner. <laughs> I wouldn't call it myself a guitarist, but uh, I do happen to own a couple or three. And uh, I'm, I'm more excited, though, about horns. And I do play uh, saxophone, clarinet, a little bit of flute, and, and uh, enjoy that very much. And uh, the question arises, where do you find the time to do all these things? Utilities are fairly demanding. They're 24-7 well-time undertakings. Well, um, so, I mean, most of the musical endeavors occur at church, so that's a place where they uh, they welcome welcome you to play, and, and uh, it's uh, it gives you a Sunday morning. That way you can do that. <laughs> that's our show for today. I hope your lights stay on in the new year, and that's a prosperous one. Until next time, cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your podcast.